Welcome to the Business Done Differently podcast, where we believe whatever is normal, do the exact opposite, and that standing out is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Jesse Cole, and it's showtime. Today's guest is an industry changer, an outrageous, out-of-the-box thinker who flipped the security industry on its head. With his company, Source Security, who went all in on his people, purpose, and processes, his book, Outrageous Empowerment, is one of the most inspiring books I've ever read. And now he's teaching it with his company, Conley Owens. Today, we're going to see firsthand what business done differently looks like. The one and only. Please welcome Ron Lovett. Thank you. <laughs> Ron, Thanks for having me. So excited to chat. So excited that we connected. Like I said, your book made a huge impact um, because you looked at business so much differently than everyone else. I mean, security business. I'm fascinated just sharing kind of how you did it, how you were able to turn around. You had a mindset. We're not competing against other security business. We're going after no. Starbucks. We're going after Southwest Airlines. So can you give a little bit of the origin story? And then we're going to dive in what you did with your people. Yeah, sure. So like every great story has a rock bottom as the big start. And the rock bottom for me was in 2011, the year after we expanded to try to take on the Olympics in Vancouver, which, you know, I'm in Halifax, Nova Scotia. That is, I can get to Copenhagen faster than Vancouver. <laughs> it's across the country. And so anyway, expanded. It was just the same old, yes, 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 we can do it. Yes, we can do it. We can do everything. And that really caused a lot of pain. We were the masters of nothing and we had really no culture. We had no focus and all and all that cost and that knowledge. And I think there's a story in the book about, I'm just in, at rock bottom and I was at a speaker, I'm involved with EO Entrepreneurs Organization. And I was at a speaker event and the speaker got up and he was talking about this mystery shop program that they ran for the banks. And he said, our mystery shoppers will go to the tellers of the same bank and they'd ask a whole bunch of questions. But the last question was always, why should I open an account here versus the 15 banks up and down the street. And he said the crazy thing was the answer was always different. Some tellers at the same bank would give different answers. You know, you should open a bank here, sir, because our customer service, our rates are better, we're open on the weekends, our lineup time is, is short, whatever it was. And he said there was not only were the frontline staff members having different answers to that question, but it was absolutely not aligned with the CEO C-level messaging and branding that they were pushing out. So, of course, the speaker challenged. He says, I challenge you to go back to your company and you ask your frontline staff why people should do business with you and you see how close it is to your answer. And I was like, oh, my God, that's going to be a big fail. And it was kind of that started me on this, like, wow, we're getting it all wrong. Because, of course, I met with some staff. They came in on Sunday. They worked with me for six, seven, eight years. And, and I asked them, why should people do business with us? And, and it wasn't even close to the reason I was leading, getting on planes and going to boardrooms across the country and selling the company. There was such a disconnect to that message. And, of course, they're already in hot water, so I thought I'd dig a little deeper. And they knew nothing about our business, nothing about us. Mm. And so that was kind of my aha moment of, oh, my God, I have so much work to do to align. How do I align the boardroom with the front lines, you know? And there's all kinds of things that came out of that, by the way, as you, you would have read up. But that was the first one where I met with some people and said, you know, what if you had the autonomy, sorry, if that cut off, to make your own decisions? If you did the hiring, if you did the firing, if you did the compliance, and they were like, Ron, we would love you would just get out of our way. Because right now, this mid-level management, it's just they make all the decisions. We have nothing to do with it, and we just have to deal with what we think are bad decisions. And so, to uh, Jim Collins' theory, you know, it was uh, get it right, and boom, you should fire a bullet, and then the cannonball. So, once we had it right, we really went full board, and that meant, you know, our reading books like uh, Nuts and Southwest and with our culture, because I think we take that for granted. 
I always think I'm a pretty decent enough fella, and I always thought I had great culture from anybody who's in arm's length. But the question is, how do you scale that? Right? That's the challenging thing. And, of course, it says in our book that we were in more challenging industries than Starbucks or Southwest because we pay lower rates. There's a double client. Our employees go to our customer space. They're under their umbrella. That's what they deal with all the time. So how do we scale culture when people turn slang? Because you can imagine in the security world, you get a job. You're hired online, essentially, towards the end of our business. We ship you uniform, and you're paid direct debit. So we had to work so hard to create culture for people that we had no access to, for the most part. I want to dive into that scaling culture. And just when I read that part, Mystery Shoppers, I was like, we have part-time concession workers, part-time selling beer. I was like, there's no chance. And how do you say it over and over again? Great leaders are repeatable. And for us, yeah. we've, we've developed you know, our perfect fan testimonial, our PFT, and the most yeah. fun you've ever had at a baseball game. It's like a circus and a baseball game breaks out. If we could get everyone saying that, then they know what they're coming for. But that's teaching. I want to know, someone listening right now, what were the first steps you did to scale? Because yeah. it was a challenge. Yeah, so I'll go back to the values. You know, of course, look, when I read Knox, I thought it was a bunch of BS. There's no way. And there's always a story, I think that's in the book, where I'm reading the book, and I'm reading about, like, Herb Keller telling everybody they're at war with Delta Airlines, and the next day, people came over working on from Vegas Chandler to the pilots. I'm like, no way. Come on. I started with my family, flying to New York, and I went home, and I had the book behind my back. And I walked to a young guy, I've never flown Southwest, a young guy at the counter, Southwest Airlines. I go up to him. I said, hey, pal, I have a question for you. He says, yeah, whatever. what's your question? I said, do you like the company you work for? And he says, what? Pardon me? I said, do you like the company you work for? I'm Adam, right? He said, dude, I don't know if you're looking for a job, but this is the best goddamn place to work on the planet. I just threw the book. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> Were you hired? Are you staged? Like, how did you get in that position? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it was just like, this is not they're getting a return on investment. If this guy loves the company this much, this is ROI on fire. And so that really inspired me to start going up. You know, we created our values and then started to push them out in various ways, from themes across the country. We would do major themes where people would live our values to me writing multiple employees every month to shout-outs from a video text message shout-out to someone who lived our value that was just random employee that would be like, oh, my God, the CEO in Halifax, five hours away, just text me how proud he is because I just lived the value of teamwork. And so town halls that I would send out through video, obviously lots of social media. But we found quickly that we had to rewind even further. So back to scaling. Because these were things that we implemented when we were on board. But we were too late. And what I mean by that is, we essentially went back to the drawing board on the process of finding staff. And what I mean by that, because it's very interesting, the security industry is very like security-driven, hierarchy. And so we kind of went back to the drawing board on two sides, Jesse. One was, what are the outcomes that we and the client are looking for in the role? And I'll keep this very simple. The major outcome they want, probably similar to you, is excellent customer service. Mm-hmm. That's the outcome that the client, it doesn't matter if we're in the security business, that's what they want. Excellent customer service. So we basically reconstructed that and said, okay, if it's excellent customer service, what trait or characteristic drives excellent customer service? That is empathy. Mm. And so we then would separate those characteristics and say, okay, is empathy a DNA trait or is it trainable? And from our perspective, you cannot train empathy. It's DNA. You're empathetic or you're not. And so we started to build questions in our application process that would screen for empathy. 
And we broke down the other characteristics that drove outcomes that we're looking for based on the client and ones that align with our culture. So continuous improvement, curiosity. You can't train curiosity. If you're not curious, if we can't screen you for being curious, you're dead to us. Sounds harsh, but so we would build questions around those. And then what we did is we looked at our current staff members and said, we, aren't, we weren't psychologists, we still aren't saying that we are. But we would test out those questions and question banks on current what I'll call A, B, and C players. So the C players that we know we wouldn't be hired today, A players we can't without, B players just do a decent job. And one, we wanted to make sure that the A players really enjoyed the questions and the experience of this, and the C players could not pass. Mm. And that's how we validated and said, ah, we got it. We got the right questions. And then the second piece was onboarding. And Jesse, it sounds like you're, you guys are really great at telling your story. I was, I'm so passionate. I love telling the story of where we started, where we're going, our values. And of course, I started by pulling my hair out and being frustrated because it became something on a manager's to-do list. Mm-hmm. So I decided to take ownership of that process and say, okay, if I can't get that consistent message, I'll say the message myself. And so all this that I'm talking about was done through technology, which we use today for our customers. And so not only were they hired and screened and then interviewed, but then onboarded with the same message. Hi, blah, blah. Let me tell you how this company started. I got to say the message. And then any message that my managers or our people would have, um, HR, site-level coordinator, that was just icing on the cake. That, that was, was their version of the story. So founders, share the story first. Share why it started. Yeah. Share what it's about. I think that's so important. A lot of time that's, that gets delegated to HR people. And then you're not really hearing from the source. There's your pun right there, Ron. They're not hearing from yes. the source on what it's all about. I love that. And you know, I think your book's obviously about empowerment with employees, but it still yeah. starts with a customer focus. And I think that same thing for us. You start your focus on your fans, and then once you get that, then it goes all in on the employees to get that. That's right. And I think you talked about the customer bill of rights. You know, I know John DeJulius very well was at Spoken Customer Service Revolution. Love, right. love what they're doing. You got that. What was your customer bill of rights, and did you come up with that yourself, or how did that how did that come about? So I took the concept from John. Actually, John was very helpful. And the other one, so we still now, like in our business, we have a tenant bill of rights. We use that in data. Yes, it doesn't apply so much to the economy as much because we just you know it's not a B to C necessarily. So customer bill of rights, we had ten bill of rights, and they were simple things. A lot of more things that John talked about. Don't tell the customer what they can't do without telling what they can do. Yeah. Don't point show. You know, just very simple things that again we could measure. And I was talking about this yesterday. I don't know if you remember the point in the book where I read. If you haven't read that book, Maverick, it's a great book. Yes, I have it right here. My wife, my son's name is Maverick. So we're we oh. everything that has Maverick on it by Ricardo Semler, right? That's right. You're going to love that book. That really encouraged me to get rid of policies and procedures, right? Because I was trying to figure out, and again, back to the low point, how do we give people their brains back in autonomy? And they say, look, for engagement, we need autonomy. And I think that that is absolutely true. The fear is, how do you process that? Because you want to have a length. Like, what is the length? What, how do you give autonomy? And I don't remember if this came from John or that book. I actually don't remember where this came from, but we implemented a decision-making process. You heard about that in the book. That was the pivotal thing that changed my company. It really was because... Yeah, let's dive into that. The decision-making <laughs> process that you set up. So the decision-making process for me, I was thinking about this, and it was during the time when I was reading that book, and Carlos had thrown out the, the policy book. Again, can't remember who. Somebody had given me this idea of the decision-making process. Maybe in that book, not familiar by John, maybe it wasn't for him. Anyhow... I thought, you know, too, that something as simple as asking a few questions, I can scale that to a million people 
but I can't scale this policy procedure manual. I, I just can't. And so I was having this idea. I knew we could reach our people through onboarding. It was all happening, and we were seeing great results. We created this bottleneck because of policies and procedures. If someone needed to do something, they still needed approval. And that wasn't working. I couldn't scale that because I was knocking out mid-level management. Yes. So I wanted a process. So the decision-making process for us was three-pronged, very simple. If you're about to do something, I don't care if you're the CFO or a part-time concierge, concession person, security guard, parking attendant, which we would have in Vancouver, ask yourself three simple questions. This was done through onboarding again. Question number one, is what you're about to do, is it the right thing for the customer? Yes or no? Black and white. Question number two, does it align with our purpose of changing the industry and our values? We have three distinct core values. And question number three, and most important, are you willing to be accountable? Because I can walk you through scenarios where this allowed people to give them their brain back. And the neat thing, which I don't talk about in the book, Jesse, which is there's two unexpected outcomes of this. Because people are really scared when we talk about that. Obviously, in the book, I talked about, you know, asking some frontline staff about that. They said, we would love that. I part of ways with my senior HR manager thought I was bananas. They want to do And so the two unexpected outcomes were this. If some people would make decisions that we didn't necessarily agree with, okay, we just didn't agree with it, but we use that for an instantaneous coaching moment to talk to that individual, say, hey, Jesse, let's talk about that decision. And by the way, thank you for using that decision. Because walk us through, did you use the decision-making product? Yes, I did. Okay, let's talk about that decision. Because this is not black and white. We're in the gray. They walk us through. We say, well, let's have a discussion about how you got to that. I understand how your brain works. We have a coaching moment. Then we would use that coaching moment to educate the entire company on what happened and the best practice around that. So it gets shared that out in the video? So that it get like, hey, this is what happened and it gets shared out to the whole staff? 100%, yeah. Outcome number two, most of the time, people make better decisions than I could have made myself as president, founder, and CEO. Yes. So right away, stop, stop what we're doing, celebrate that person had done that story to inspire everybody else. So we also would use that as a time to share and create a new standard for the company. When this happens, this was awesome. This is what we like to see happen in these situations. And so these two unexpected outcomes really inspired folks, gave them their brain back. And I remember asking clients, how is this affecting our work? And they said, God, your people can move fast. They can make decisions now. They can move. They don't need approval anymore. I've never seen this type of nimbleness and speed. And so we started to crush everybody. And we threw up the policy and procedure mail. And I will say, there's no doubt that we had a backstop, which means like, yes, if we were at a, a hospital or a post-secondary education facility, they had their own policies. And yes, we have to follow them. Why do we have to complicate with our own? So we just threw it all up. We developed the same thing. Yeah, and every decision is, is it fans first? But for us, is it fans first? But that part about accountability, are you willing to be accountable, is so crucial. Can you give like an example, something that stands out of a decision that, yeah. wow, that's crazy. Because I think people are saying, well, how do you let a frontline person make all the decisions? Everywhere has mid-level managers. I mean, this is a dramatic different thing. Can you give me an example? I'm going to give you two because I want to go to both sides of this. One is it was a protection mechanism for the company, too. So positive one is an example. There was someone in a post-secondary education facility and a student had locked their keys in the car. It was a mother. And she had to get to her family. She picked her daughter up from daycare. And the security guard said, you know what? I made a decision to call the tow truck. It cost $75. I paid the bill. I expect the company to come to me. And let me walk you through how I got there. We're trying to change the security industry. Nobody would ever do that for a customer. I think that helps. 
it was the right thing for the customer. We're trying to change the industry out of line. And I'm willing to be accountable for that decision. I think that this company will back me up. And I said, absolutely right. High five. That's worth the $75 all day long. You went over and above what industry would do. It aligns with our purpose. It was the right thing for the customer every day, all day. And so I'll go to the other side because we would also use this to our benefit because the accountability, Jesse, in businesses like ours and a lot of businesses, it is also protection because when you onboard someone with, ask yourself these three questions. It kept us out of hot water from a labor stand. What I mean by that is we would get a call from a client and say, your security guard last night was watching a movie and fell asleep and they fell asleep and then two people came through the door. Okay? So, right? Not good. Client's not happy. We'd sit down and say, Jesse, Let's talk about this. So, your decision that you made to watch the movie, and then, of course, you fell asleep. Was that the right thing for the customer? No. It was black and white. That was not the right thing for the customer. Does that align with us changing the industry and our values? No. But you have to be accountable for that decision. So, you made the decision to exit from the company. And I can tell you, Jesse, that that was also an unexpected benefit. We never went to the labor board. Once we had really empowered people, we always go back to, you made the decision, you control your destiny. And so you're gone. I love you it. made that decision. And it protected us. So the last five years has zero labor claims, which in our industry is shocking. That's amazing. It's amazing. By the way, Ron, I haven't told you, but we do some games. We bounce around a little bit and a little bit. So just get mentally prepared for that. But number one, yeah. I love when you said dare to be bad. So you said first you're gonna go back to the drawing board, review, and then dare to be bad at things. And I think you got this exactly the same thing, uncommon service, Francis Free, I think she talked about, yes, which we've read all the same books, which is great, but what did you guys dare to be bad at? Because it's something that we're constantly saying, can we be bad at this and still be the best at this? And even you talk about which we haven't talked much about, your new company, Vita as well. I'm actually gonna draw Vita in here because we just went through this exercise. That's okay. So with Vita And we what have is Vita? Yeah, what is Vita just to share to the group? So Vita is a company that is really revolutionizing affordable communities. We know there's an affordable housing crisis globally. This industry to me was the toilet industry, like the security guard industry. So I went back to the drawing board and wanted to create a company that owns that industry, just is super focused on that 10% of the real estate industry. We can crush the competition and be innovative and value these customers. And so, long story short, through piloting various things, we figure out that the four challenges from a customer standpoint are a place that living, having an affordable place to live, we know there's not enough inventory, but even when they do have an affordable place to live, there's a lack of safe, secure places to live that are clean, that provide any sense of community, and have opportunity for those individuals. So we piloted these concepts, boom. It was working. We created this brand, Viva Living, and today with 350 units, looking to go to 1,000 in two years, 10,000 in seven years, so we can in the US. And so we just went through this exercise because I do want to say, from my experience, it's a tough exercise for startups mm. because you don't know what you don't know. You pivot too quickly. And so you have to be careful with that exercise. I think we were only ready two years in to run the exercise. We know our business. Even my other business may be changing too quickly. It will be too soon to run that exercise. And so anyway, we go through that exercise, and we know that, to Francis Ray's point, you can't be the best at everything. You have to choose what are you good at and what are you not good at. And my sister and I had this conversation that day because we also run an exercise. Here's what we do, and here's what we don't do. Very important exercise. But Francis Ray's exercise is more in the here's what we do category, but here's what we do well, and here's what we don't do well. Mm-hmm. So it's not what you don't do. I think some people sometimes get confused about that. Yeah. And so... We went through this exercise with Vita because there's some things that we just don't do well. 
And I'll give you an example. So what we do well, security, when it comes to security, cleanliness, opportunity, community, we need to own that. That is where sense of urgency, that's where our, that's where we have to crush the competition, innovate in those spaces, and look for the customers care about those things, by the way. That those things are very important as well as having affordable space. Here's what we don't do well. We don't do well with having buildings that are noisy. And what I mean by that is all of our buildings are from 12 to 40 units. They're stick frame, wood frame, they're not concrete. We allow families and we allow pets. So these are noisy spaces. So we have buildings, there's noise, and we just don't do well at quiet spaces. Mm. And so we also tie that back to our application process to make it very clear. Don't come in and expect this to be a very quiet place because it's not quiet. We have refugee families and local families and, and kids. They're just not quiet, and they're not going to be, and we're not going to fix that problem. And we're not going to spend money and resources trying to fix it. We're going to be transparent that we are not the quiet place to live. I love it. I love it. And so now it's very anything else? Yeah. So in that business, we are also not good at repairing things that you can repair for yourself. And what I mean by that is if there's a baseboard, needs to paint, and you could probably paint it yourself, anything that doesn't require amount of skill, we are not good at fixing those things. If it's a plumbing issue, it needs very specific technical skills. We outsource that. We use it or, or tap into the community, but we're not good at doing things which people can fix themselves. We're just not good at that. We're never going to be good at that. We don't run at that because those small maintenance costs also drive costs, which also we have to pass it on to the tenant, and so it hurts affordability. Yeah. And so we always tie it back to the business. And so those are two examples of things that we're just not going to be great at. We're not going to pretend we're great at them. And yeah, I love it. We have a 1926 ballpark run. All right, literally one of the oldest ballparks. Babe Ruth played here, Hank Aaron, you name it. We have no technology. We have no top of the level suites. All right. It is some of the paint's falling off. It's an older ballpark. We will never have the nicest stadium in the world. And but right. we are going to make sure we put on a show every single night. We won't have steakhouses and the top of the line food because meal, every single ticket is all inclusive. So again, I right. love this exercise because people come for that one main thing. Every company should do that. And then it provides clarity not only for the top, but clarity for the frontline people. This is what this is all about. It's like, oh, no, this is what we're the best at. Like, we know this. this is what we're targeting. And I think I was so inspired by your book and the part when you had Paul and he said, this is my company and this is my family. And you're building that. And I think for all of us, sometimes we have the front office, the full-time people that are here, and they're really a part of it after many years. But those people that just start. What have you seen now with Vita, obviously with Source, those frontline people that are just starting turn into a Paul that say, this is my family, this is my company. Any things that like we can just take out and say, this is how you get the ownership? I'll go back a little bit to what I said before. I think if you're not screening for alignment out of the gates, you're taking a big risk. Mm. And even then, it's never going to be perfect. But if you're not screening for your values, if part of your screening process doesn't say, look, to join this company, you need to be super passionate and so being okay with that, too, and having these upfront conversations and using some of that language to filter out people that may or may not align with your values, with your vision. Because trying to convince someone once they join is a lot of work. I know, uh, you know, Marcus Buckingham's been talking a lot about, if you haven't read Nine Lives about work, it's phenomenal. Yes, it's a great book. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, he's talking about, you know, you can't motivate people. People are motivated or they're not. So I kind of believe that with getting someone who's engaged, I just don't, my experience doesn't say there's a but, because I feel that if someone's being onboarded, I'm then talking about our purpose, it's just too late. I might as well go to the casino. 
So I just think it starts from out of the gates and checkpoints. Does that resonate with you? How do you feel about that? Really talking to the individual. How do they feel? You know, what feelings come about when you talk about revolutionizing? I want to help. I want to get behind it. These are all very good signs, right? Yeah. Well, you have such a big, a big fight that you're doing. I mean, are you trying to revolutionize now affordable housing? So everything's this revolution that you get people that are ready to pick a fight, that are ready to go after it, ready to, you know, which is so powerful. You also it's mentioned sacrifice. Yeah, right? sacrifice. Willing to go through some tough times to get there. And that's what you yeah. need. That's what entrepreneurs go through every day. You mentioned something yeah. also about the brand promise scorecard. Are you still doing that? Is that, I mean, obviously, it was part of Source. Tell me about that one a little bit. Yeah, we implement that at Conley okay. because we're B2B. And so we do have a brand promise scorecard. And Source, that was really good because that really, I mean, the, the nuts and bolts of brand promise scorecard, that came from Bernhardt. I don't know if you know yes, love Bernhardt. Right? You spoke his thing too before. No, I haven't, but I know Vern very well. I mean, I know, I know okay. him. I know everything he's done. Yes, right. Actually, and he's on our board. Actually, great, great guy. And so, with Source, the brand promise scorecard was it was to hold the company accountable to what the promise of the brand was, and and really, our brand promise was we'll serve you better than anybody else. And how we backed that up was really in, in two ways. One, we would be vulnerable and open and say, "Look, Jesse, we're taking this contract on." But we want to be upfront that we're in a people business, and so we're going to have challenges. And what we mean by that is someone might not show up on time, someone may be late, someone may be rude because they've had a rough go, someone may not have their shirt tucked in. We would just be so transparent about this business, which was a breath of fresh air to the customer because overpromised, underdelivered. And we would say, so look, we want to be open about this. These things, at some point, are one of these things are going to happen, or multiple. But because we serve you better than anybody else, that's our brand promise. What we can guarantee is we'll fix those issues faster than anybody you've ever dealt with in this industry. And so we would always go back to that and say, hey, Jesse, the guard didn't have your shirt tucked in or whatever happened. Did we deal with it quickly? Because we want to make sure we align with our brand promise. We would fix that issue very fast. And so you're connecting uh, with the customer on this? Yes, absolutely. This so, was the customer. So the brand promise scorecard isn't used as much with the, the team members? No, no. The only thing we would do, Jesse, is so two things. That was the high-level brand promise. Of course, we would always have KPIs, like so slip and falls or whatever thing that was very important to the customer. We would negotiate, put that in the contract, check in on that quarterly, but always, always be transparent about that brand promise scorecard to the team so they knew exactly what the metrics were, how they were measured. I love it. All right, Ron, I want to do a little bit of debatable here. All right, I know which way you're going with this, but I'm going to give you a counter-argument. Are you going to Trump here? Don't no, Trump. don't believe me. I don't go politics. I don't go politics. I've learned that. Back in the day, David Stern, the commissioner of the NBA, all right, he was known to say micromanagement is dramatically underrated. And he believes so much in micromanagement that you need to tell people, you need to be over them, make sure they're doing what you need them to do. So micromanagement versus empowerment. And I know, obviously, your thought process and power. So the people that say, hey, you need to micromanage, you need to get in there and tell them what they need to do to lead them in the direction. Debate that. I'm debating against it. Yes. You're debating You're debating yeah. for empowerment. Yes, obviously. So funny. I just had a conversation with potential customers out of Manila, and he's a micromanager. A great guy. But, you know, he wants everybody to send a list of the items that they've done that day. And, of course, then he complains, oh, my God, I'm so busy. I can't keep up. But if I, if I go to this manager, all this information is coming at me all the time. I don't even have time to review it. You create your own worst nightmare. I mean, it's think about the amount of time it takes to review these things all the time, to execute, review, execute, review, because garbage in, garbage out. If I said, hey, Jesse, you do this, is this, and I haven't checked up on every little item, I'm wasting your time like that anyways. And so I believe it's absolutely not scalable, because in normal business, what happens, by the way, is 
we micromanage, micromanage, there's too much coming at us as a leader, and we say, oh my God, this is too much, I just need to hire a body to put in between me and all these details, mm-hmm. and you micromanage it, and I just killed margin, I killed margin, I created my first big point bottleneck, I created bureaucracy, and just started to kill the entrepreneurial spirit, so of course, I think, look, I think, and I'll go back to what I said before, autonomy can be dangerous without process and guidance. So I like to basically have high level. This is our purpose. This is where we're going. Here's what you need to know about this customer. And here's a guideline of information to get you there. And I need three questions. Because then you're on your own. But the questions, at least there has to be, and we just talked about this, I like some accountability. I'll call it self-accountability. So how do, you, how do you keep that in touch? Like, how do you check to make sure that they are still doing it? So every business is different. For, so in our business, in the security space, it was quite easy because the customer would let us know if it wasn't being, you know, they weren't happy. And we would proactively check in on simple. that. Simple. Yes. Right? I love it. Yeah. Very simple, right? And again, look, there has to be some trust. Yes. But I'll go back to, John says this all the time, if you want to have policy procedures, micromanagement, stuff's made for children. If you want your employees to act like children, then go ahead and do it. I believe in that. And it's never going to be perfect. I think that some of the pivotal moments for me were people making mistakes. They would have made those same mistakes with our policy procedure micromanagement. They would have made the same mistakes. Yeah. And so I just kept pushing forward. And so it allowed me, it changed my life, Jesse, because I went from, oh my God, firefighting, micromanagement, putting up fires and calling up with everybody, not having enough time, my phone ringing 24 7, and not even having an office. You know, like, I'm talking to you today. We've got two businesses. I'm in the library. I don't have an office right here. You know? <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. There is an inner debate I'm going to share with you inside our office. Yeah. We have our front office, our full-time. We have mm-hmm. each concession stand, our merchandise, our bar, all around 150 part-time staff. There's okay. a debate. A lot of people are saying we need a manager, a leader for each stand, each part of the ballpark. That's one thought process. Then there's another thought process. No, we don't need that. You're running the company. I know what you think, but what would you tell the people that think we need to have a manager at each stand that's the leader that they all look up to? So, ask you a few clarifying questions. So, just walk me through. There's one like the, the beer concession area, yeah. and you're saying we can Yes, there's a main concession stand. There's, there's a couple beer stands. There's food and service and merchandise and beer all around, all different stations around the ballpark. Okay. And so, right now, who schedules these people? Who allows this happen on the back end? Yeah, our employee experience coordinator. Employee experience coordinator, but does it for everybody? Does for all the part time, yes. All the part time. And so, yeah, some people said we should have a manager, and, and what's their argument? The fact that people aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing, what's their argument? I think the argument is just someone that they respond to that watches what they're doing to make sure. I probably an accountability means. So, here's what we did in our past life, and we're doing now with Vita because we've got more people. We assign experts. So if you are an expert at something, so I, if you are a fan experience expert, some of you already have that, or if you're a beer pouring expert, <laughs> then you were the person where people would go to. That person was really a coach. They were so good at what they knew that they would coach other individuals on it. In some cases, call it a candle fine, but I'll call it coaching moments. Hey, I saw the way the beer was poured. Let's, let me coach you on that. So real-time coaching, and an expert to support anybody who had questions around that functionality. And so we did design experts. It's actually a key piece of our business because we went from 14 mid-level managers, moved it all, had seven managers. We were a $10 million business, and we were three and a half million with almost 21 mid-levels at one point. So we had to have people that were experts in certain enterprise to know that they would be experts. 
they were the people that shared their knowledge base, did training, stepped up to help coach. Those were all those key pieces. And, and in our business, it helped. Now, I don't know about well, I no, call no, that's it. great. What'd you call them? Did you? Because I like, again, no one wants to be a boss. People want mentors. They want coaches. No one wants training. They want to be educated. They want to be coached. What did you call these people? Were they called experts or were they actually called managers? No, we called them experts. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they were experts that were the experts, you know, so we had occupational health and safety experts. They were the people who dealt with that. We had customer service experts. We employed benefit experts. Like, we just had so many people that were just said, look, my day-to-day job is this, but I'm just really good. I'm really passionate about this one subject matter. I want to help the company with that. Oh, that's great. And it gets people to look up to them and say, oh, you know, you got to go to them as opposed to they're watching what you're doing. You got it. You should go to them. It's a different way. That's of right. I love Own it. your own experience. Go to the expert if you need help. And the expert is also a coach, right? Someone's pouring something or uh, whatever it is. They can real-time coach. And, hey, can I chat to you about that? I saw that. Love to coach here if you're open to it, you know. So that is accountability, I'll, I'll say, in, in a roundabout way. I love it. So the question, you know, who are the experts in your company? Who are the people that you can go to? We had a young man, Alex, who knew everything about electrical technology. And everyone knew if there was any issues, just go to Alex. And he was looked up. Yeah. I think he was 23 years old, 24 years old, but everyone looked up to him. And I think he was right. never looked upon as a boss. That's really powerful. All right, Ron, I want to go to some rapid-fire questions, all right? Let's have some fun. Yeah. All right, let's go to tool time. What is the most important tool that you have in your business toolbox? Tool being like uh However you want to answer it. I get a lot wide range of this. Okay. You know, look, for me, it's a strong purpose. And the reason I say that is because I'm guilty of shiny object syndrome. And so I'll go back to the uh, our purpose is to revolutionize affordable communities. I can check and balance my organization. I use it as a recruiting tool. I make sure that I don't invest in a condominium project because it doesn't align with that, or I sold all my commercial properties because it didn't align with that. I mean, it just keeps me focused. And so having a purpose that also keeps the founder accountable to stay in the way, that's it. my best tool. I love it. All right, flip the script. You are now the host of Business Done Differently. You get one question to ask me. What was the shift for you? I'm going to assume you came from a different place, too. You had a rock box. Or what was the one shift that you said, oh, my God, what was your I lost a million dollars? So that was four years ago with Emily, my wife and I, and we were sleeping on our airbed and we had to sell our house down to our last dollar. And we looked at each other and she said, you know, we have to treat this like every game is someone's first game. Every single game, we have to create moments that people will never forget. And that's when we kind of came up with the fans first mentality of developing you wouldn't believe moments. And every person who comes to the ballpark, you wouldn't believe. And we went all in. So at that moment, we just said, we're going to go all in on the brand from when they first come to the stadium, how they're greeted by parking penguins parking their car to pep bands to banana shaped tickets to we hired a professional high fiver literally their whole job is to high five people so we tried to create our whole experience like that and we went from marketing like everyone else and doing things like everyone else to now we spend zero dollars marketing and our customers or our fans are telling everyone you wouldn't believe what happened at the ballpark tonight so that was our love so good question my friend all right now that's what i call service what was the best service experience that you had recently or something that stands out you're like this was special yeah, for me, my wife and I just spent a weekend at a place called Trout Point Lodge, or three hours from here. And in rural Nova Scotia, rural Canada, it's really tough to get five-star service because most business owners try to tap into the community, train, train, train. They're frustrated because it's seasonal, it's turnover. And this place had got it right. What they did is they seemed to, I mean, the service was unbelievable. You walk in, hi, Mr. Love, we take your car. I'm like, we're in the middle of Tom Fox, nowhere. You know, I'm like, oh my God, sorry, just swearing. I just couldn't believe that that type of service. Let me take your room and I'll start to fire for you, Mr. Love. I mean, it was just incredible. And how they solved that problem is the back end technical things and, and maintenance of the lodge was all handled locally. 
but they had deals with um, five-star resorts in Calgary, in Banff, and New Zealand, and these people were just kind of rotated. So it was a service expert just showed up, a seasonal service expert. You could just show them where the bathroom is and stuff, but they knew that service right out of the gate. Well, they were in Noma in Copenhagen. So I was just blown away, and I just thought, wow, they solved this problem because I had so many um, friends of mine that had these resorts that have been like, I can't figure this out. We can't keep people. We're turning them over. And here, you know, I'm talking about going to a five-star resort, you ask the young 17-year-old, what wine would you suggest? And she's like, I don't drink wine. I don't know. That's a, I don't, I've never had wine before. You know, like, you're just not going to get it. And so they solved that problem by just looking at it from a different perspective and having people that already had that level of expertise and service. It was really cool. Oh, I love it. Back to the experts. Bring on experts. I love it. All right. That's it. Time. If you want answer, better answers in business, you got to ask better questions. What are some of yeah. the best questions you're asking these days? Best questions I'm asking. Look, I absolutely agree a thousand percent. It's all getting the right question. The questions led me as you read, you know, along my entire journey, journey including selling my company. Yes. And I tend to go back to these questions. Jesse, I go back to these questions, you know, knowing what we know that person would be excited to rehire them today. Knowing what we know that customer would be excited to bring them on again today. Knowing what we know that building would we reacquire it today. So just simple questions. That give me more of a black, white, yes, no answer that don't lead me to more complexity. Knowing what I know about the industry, would I be excited to reinvest in it today? And that's why I sold my business. I wouldn't be excited to reinvest in the private security industry. And those questions, when I get answers to those questions, I move very fast. And so they've done me very well. In some cases, I'm not trying to figure out new complex questions. I'm going back to question banks and I just reapply them to specific situations. I love it. It's what questions can make you move faster. And those are the questions. And everything's speed. Move faster, make quicker decisions. I love it. All right. Uh, final two here. Yeah. What's one thing that you've done stand out in business or in life? Stand out in business, I just think is, I think for standing out in business is taking on challenging problems that maybe haven't been solved before. So in the security space and where we are with Vita, we have a blindfold on. I can't call a mentor and say, hey, tell me how you've done this before. That doesn't exist for me. I'm really into uncharted territory, which, caught, look, it's disruptive to my life sometimes. It's a pain in my wife's ass. It's annoying to me, and sometimes you feel like crawling up in balls and saying, what am I getting myself into here? It's also invigorating, and I love it. And I love what comes out of the other side, and I love taking on challenging stuff. And so, yeah. I love it. I love it. Final question here. How do you want to be remembered? You know, I just want to be remembered by someone who always gave back. You know, it was a good family person father, husband, and who always gave my time back. I mean, I always constantly say, Jesse, I, you know, probably similar to you, won the lottery in life, and so I've got a lot of dues to pay back, and I'm happy to do it, and I just never want to forget where I came from, and always take time to help people who reach out to me. Well, you're doing that today, my man. I love the gratitude. I'll tell you, I actually heard of your book from Byrne. He was talking on a podcast, and I can't tell you how much it inspired me, shared it with the team, and then today, man, some unbelievable wisdom lessons. So the book, Outrage Empowerment, check it out. Where else can people find more about you? And Ron, I really appreciate you, man. Yeah, thanks, Jesse. I've got a website, ronlovett.ca, so there's some information on there. And of course, our business, which is doing great, Conley Owens, which is conleyowens.com, which really helps companies develop their application and onboarding, designed specifically for their company, that role, their culture, and then onboarding with their story. And I think that's a business opportunity for a lot of companies. And so we're really, that's what we did so well. And so it made sense to repackage that and move it into a new business. Yeah. Well, you're making an impact. You're making a difference. I appreciate it, my friend. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate this. 
Thanks for listening to Business Done Differently, where we believe whatever's normal, do the exact opposite. And that standing out is the best way to grow your business. For more information about the guest and topics covered on this episode, visit findyouryellowtux.com or shoot me a note at jesse at findyouryellowtux.com. Until next time, stop standing still, start standing out.